Hello and welcome to Frank Skinner's Poetry Podcast. This week I'm going to discuss the American poet Emily Dickinson, who was born in 1830 and died in 1886. I'll be honest with you, I used to struggle a bit with Emily Dickinson. I like strangeness and oddity in all its manifestations, but I used to find her poetry quite alienating. It felt a bit to me like, you know when you get instructions on Japanese electrical items and they've been quite badly translated into English and they sort of seem to be in the same postcode as meaning but not actually meaning it was a bit like that i i felt i couldn't i couldn't find the core of the poetry and i think now that there is a reason for that and i will go into that reason of why the poetry is the way it is but it is biographical and normally i avoid biographical explanations of of poetry because I think they're very heavy on speculation. But this podcast, I'm going to let my biographical hair down and just go for it. I finally sorted out my um, problems with Emily Dickinson in that we went away on holiday together. It's a, it's a, a radical method of saving or even forming a relationship. What I mean is I went on a family holiday and I didn't take any books or a Kindle or a iPod or anything by the way of solitary entertainment except for a collection of Emily Dickinson's verse and I decided it was make or break for me that week and on day three I got it and when I say I got it I mean I, I think I got it Anyone who can confidently say that they have got a poet and their work is being quite arrogant, I think. I think we all get as close as we can. So, I'm going to give you a little bit of biography of Emily before I start. I think of her as Emily now, you know, once you've holidayed together. And I think this is relevant to the poetry and that's why I'm sharing it with you. Emily Dickinson lived in Amherst, Massachusetts, and she lived an incredibly, as she as her life went on, a more and more solitary and reclusive life. She would occasionally be seen around Amherst, always in a long white dress. She always dressed exclusively in white when seen, and she became known locally as the myth. So, yeah, she was one of those locals that the other locals gossiped about. And eventually she stopped leaving her bedroom, basically, and just sat in there, as far as we can tell, writing poetry. She did. She had letters and she occasionally spoke to people through the door. But it was a, a very, very solitary confinement type life. And she had about half a dozen poems published in her lifetime, all of which were butchered, to be honest. They were um, rewritten and re everything to make them more palatable 
to a contemporary reader. So I think she gave up on getting poetry published, but didn't give up on writing it. So that's the setting, if you like. I'm now going to read you an Emily Dickinson poem, and we'll see how it goes. First stanza. I'm not giving you the title because they are almost never titled. So this is from 1862, to give you a bit of context. After great pain, a formal feeling comes. The nerve sits ceremonious, like tombs. The stiff heart questions, was it he that bore? And yesterday? Or centuries before? I think you get the oddity straight up. Maybe it's me. Okay, after great pain, a formal feeling comes. So this is about how one deals with a traumatic experience. And she's telling us, the speaker is telling us, a formal feeling comes. So the way that she deals with it, and I think suggesting that many people deal with it, is to stop being a fully expressed human being, to remove emotion and feelings and sensitivities so you can cope with what's happened. After great pain, a formal feeling comes. And interestingly, I think, this first stanza is in our old friend iambic pentameter. Ten syllables a line, alternatively stressed and unstressed syllables. And it seems apt to me, as I've said many times, in good poetry, the form reflects the feeling. And so if you're talking about becoming more formal after after a terrible experience, if you're talking about editing out your emotions, making yourself very much in control, then it's quite good to do it in a tight, orderly, traditional metre. It echoes your sentiments. Now, there's, there's a couple of things in this first... Um, let's just talk about what I think it means. After great pain, a formal feeling comes. So, yes, that's, that's how you deal with great pain. The nerves sit ceremonious like tombs. She's not afraid of a bit of uh, personification. So the nerves now become like characters in this drama. The nerves sit ceremonious like tombs. So they've bought into this formality. Uh, they sit ceremonious. And the simile like tombs, I think that puts them in rows. That makes them quite stately. It makes them quite serious. It also, of course, smells of death. And there is some killing of one's instincts and one's feelings in order to get into this state of formality. The stiff heart questions. So it's a stiff heart because it also is part of this formalizing. The heart now so often associated with love and enthusiasm and excitement. It's a stiff heart, this one. It, it's bought into the, the process of everything now going cold and calm. The stiff heart questions, was it he that bore and yesterday or centuries 
before. So the heart is saying, was was actually me that went through that trauma? Was it yesterday or was it since? So what's happened, that the, the heart's way of coping, and as I say, these things have been personified, the heart's way of coping with the great pain was a sort of amnesia, I guess self-imposed, but maybe it's just fallen upon the heart as a as a way of coping so the nerves and the heart are characters in this first stanza it's a bit like i don't know if you ever read the numbskulls in in the beano you'd get someone's head and then there'd be someone operating the eyes inside little creatures that supposedly lived in your head somebody doing the the swallowing and emptying the nostrils, whatever. It's a bit like a a very um, serious version of that. You have taken on, you the speaker, have taken on the formal feeling, whether you've done that deliberately or whether it's, as the first line suggests, a formal feeling comes, it just happens. and, And each part of you, the nerves, the heart, have all bought into this new, cold coping regime now there's a couple of things here which i feel i should point out because they are so classically emily dickinson one is if i read out the punctuation as well i would be saying dash a lot for example after great pain a formal feeling comes dash the nerves sit ceremonious like tombs dash and there's a there are in total, I think, well, anyway, there's always a load of dashes around in Emily Dickinson, and they serve various purposes. They, it can just be a pause, it can be a linking device used instead of brackets, instead of a colon. That first one, after great pain, a formal feeling comes. I think that's a colon, that one, because a formal feeling comes, and now I'm going to elucidate on that formal feeling. The nerves sit ceremonious like tombs. I think that one's probably a full stop. Anyway, she loves them and they're everywhere. And it was one of the uh, casualties of those handful of published poems. That was one of the things that editors went straight for. Let's get rid of these dashes. Ted Hughes, the brilliant British poet, said that You couldn't remove the dashes without, and I'm quoting now, without deadening the wonderfully naked voltage of the poem. So he felt that they were crucial. I will only mention them if I feel they are particularly pertinent. If I start reading this, after great pain of formal feeling comes dash, the nerves sit ceremonious like tombs dash, it will sound like there is a director's commentary in Morse code running simultaneously to my own monologue and I think that will get annoying. One other classic Dickinson technique which I'm going to point out in this stanza before we move on. After great pain a formal feeling comes, the nerves sit ceremonious like tombs and they don't quite rhyme. It's what they call slant rhyme, comes and tombs but They're close enough to just unsettle you a little bit. That thing of a a plate on the edge of a table just makes you a bit uneasy. And these rhymes on the edge of actual rhyme 
also cause a slight anxiety, I think. That was the first stanza. Here is the second. It's not in iambic pentameter anymore, and I'll explain why. why I think. The feet mechanical go round of ground or air or aught, a wooden way, regardless grown, a quartz contentment like a stone. Right, I think this metre propels us forward more. And I think that's because the speaker is talking about being propelled, about moving into automaton mode as part of this coping with uh, that initial great pain. I should tell you now, we are not going to find out, on our spoilers, we're not going to find out what that great pain is. And that makes absolute sense, of course, to the poem, because it's all about shutting it out and sort of pretending it didn't happen. So it is removed from the poem just as it has been removed from the consciousness of the speaker. The feet mechanical go round of ground or air or aught. So whatever area they are operating in, they just go round mechanically. This is the idea of just moving about now and not operating as a fully emotional human being. Um, the feet mechanical go round of ground or air or aught, aught as in, you know, whatever, wherever. A wooden way, regardless grown, a quartz contentment like a stone. So a wooden way, that kind of makes sense because you have become wooden. Your way of life has become wooden in that the, 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 the blood has been drawn out of it regardless grown so you don't regard anymore you don't really think about or notice things anymore you are the automaton eyes forward mechanically moving your feet going round okay a quartz contentment like a stone so there you have a summary of where you are now where the speaker is now in this new regime, a quartz contentment like a stone. Now, as contentment ever sounded less like contentment than when it was given quartz as its uh, substance, a quartz contentment really doesn't sound very content. It sounds very imposed and, as the speaker says, like a stone. And that's what the speaker has had to do to make themselves cold and stone-like. It's a thing that she likes to do. Again, I'm talking about a lot of her general techniques, but I'm hoping you're all going to go away and read a lot of Emily Dickinson, so I want to get you fully armed. She likes describing abstract ideas in a physical way. So a wooden way... You know, a way of life is quite an abstract idea. To make it wooden, a quartz contentment, it's giving them a very physical presence, a bit like the the nerves and the heart were personified in, in that first stanza. She likes to keep it fairly concrete, even though she's talking about quite difficult emotional, psychological things. 
And that thing of, of, of combining the physical and the abstract, I'm just going to quote a, a tiny bit from another poem that I really like, where she says, the soul has bandaged moments. And that, again, is classic Dickinson, a very abstract idea like the soul, bandaged. Lovely. Last stanza. This is the hour of lead. And you have to read it like that. They're, you know, monosyllables. Bang, this is where we are. This is the hour of lead, remembered, if outlived, as freezing persons recollect the snow. First chill, then stupor, then the letting go. And I carefully observed the dashes in my reading of that last line. So this is the hour of lead. This is really now, isn't it? Laying it on the line. This is how you live, as if you were of lead. We've already had the wooden way, the quartz contentment like stone. You've become inanimate in order to cope. Remembered if outlived. So if you get through it, you will remember it. And it will be remembered, and I'm going back into quotation here, as freezing persons recollect the snow. First, chill, then stupor, then the letting go. So her comparison with living like this and then getting through it and looking back at living like this is like someone who has been frozen in the snow looking back. And obviously it's an apt analogy, the idea of being frozen, of being numbed. So, and that, those last two lines of the poem, as freezing persons recollect the snow, first chill, then stupor, you see, I tried to read it without the dashes then, and I felt I was doing her a disservice, and I, I stopped. So the last two lines are in iambic pentameter. So she returns at the end of the poem for the last two lines to the iambic pentameter in which she started the poem. And I think that's because I'm living this formal life, she's telling us, and I'm just going to relax enough to explain to you what it's like but in order to carry on with my life post the poem, I then tighten back to iambic pentameter and on I mechanically go. That is the feeling that I get. And that last line, first chill. Remember, this is not only what she, the speaker, has been through emotionally, but also what people frozen in the snow go through. First chill. So that is that initial pain I guess, then stupor, which is the shock of what's happened to you, that, and that dazed feeling, and then the letting go. And I guess, although it says in the first line that this life just comes, a formal feeling comes, I think there's a suggestion in the letting go that there is, there is some intention in it that you are allowing it to happen. I hope you'll agree that it is distinctive. I think I'd spot an Emily Dickinson poem from A Hundred Yards. I'd actually, while I have the book in my hand, I'm going to read to you what I wrote. You know, I, I do a lot of marginalia, 
in that I write on the poetry books. I think that's why there's so much white paper exposed in and around poems, so you can scribble. And this was, I, I wrote this the day on that holiday that I felt that I at least got into Emily Dickinson. I'm not going to say understood it, but I got into it and I started to really like it. And this is what I wrote. And I think what we've said about her living as a recluse and only having a handful of poems published and then being treated quite badly, I think, make sense of what I wrote. I quote, I'm quoting me, feels like poetry from another planet. The odd phraseology, the dashes, the sense of something implied. It's like there's her house and then the rest of the world. Language as developed differently in these two places. Even punctuation is different, like a strange offshoot of literary evolution. Difficult, but I like the idea she just started writing for herself. Like when Elisa Gabbert tweeted... Um, I should probably explain that bit. Elisa Gabbard's an American poet, and I read a tweet of hers which I really liked and which made me think of Emily Dickinson. Okay, so difficult, but I like the idea. She just started writing for herself, like when Elisa Gabbard tweeted, "No one cares about my poems. I can hide anything there." So that was my eureka day when I thought, "Oh yes." I see now why people love Emily Dickinson. And they do, believe me, they love her. They love her. Okay, so I'm going to talk about another poem now. And if you are new to Emily Dickinson, I think already you're more prepared now. You're ready for the kind of uh, strangeness which you do get to really like. Okay, I'm just going to do the first stanza. This is a poem from 1863, by the way, around the same time as the last one. One need not be a chamber to be haunted. One need not be a house. The brain has corridors surpassing material place. It's not about... This is a poem from 1863, not some experimental student in Los Angeles on a creative writing course. This is uh, an American woman in the 19th century. And what an opening line. One need not be a chamber to be haunted. It's just, uh, yeah, well, yeah, you're right. I've never thought of that, but that is true. One, one need not be a chamber to be haunted. One need not be a house. The brain has corridors surpassing material place. And I'm thinking that's slant rhyme, that house and place, because you've got that sound at the end. But it's unsettling, as I say, that slant rhyme. And this whole first stanza is fairly unsettling one need not be a chamber to be haunted one need not be a house those are i guess where we expect to see ghosts in rooms and in houses but the brain has corridors surpassing material place so there's plenty more corridors 
nooks, crannies, hiding places for ghosts in the brain than there is in any house, no matter how big. That is what she is telling us. I'm going to read the next two stanzas together because they both have the same opening. Far safer of a midnight meeting external ghost than its interior confronting that cooler host. Far safer through an abbey gallop the stones a chase than unarmed one's a self-encounter in lonesome place. So, yeah, you're better off. You see, both of these stanzas are comparisons. It's the comparison between meeting a ghost of someone else and meeting a ghost of yourself. And, and on both occasions, the speaker says the external ghost is less dangerous. Far safer of a midnight meeting external ghost than its interior confronting, its interior version, if you like, an interior ghost confronting, that cooler host. Now, why is the interior ghost a cooler host? Well, it's less dramatic. There's no chains rattling. It's more subtle and nuanced. It's a bit, I suppose, it could take it back to the poem we just read about coolness and coldness. It's, it's less spectacular, the internal ghost. The cooler host, I think it's a host because, well, ghosts always act as if they own the place. So that's the first comparison. Far safer through an abbey gallop, the stones a chase than unarmed one's a self-encounter in lonesome place. So here's the comparison again, the sort of ghost that we all talk about and all think of and the internal ghost that gets ignored even though it is less safe than the other one. And for this one, she's gone full into melodrama, full into gothic imagery, Far safer through an abbey gallop, the stones a chase. So it, it is, it's like you're reading one of those very sensationalist novels when someone's galloping through a ruined abbey and the stones themselves, the very building seems to be threatening you. And that sounds very, very melodramatic and exciting, but it's safer than unarmed one's a self-encounter in lonesome place. So I suppose you're always unarmed against your internal ghosts. And once a self-encounter, you meet yourself in a lonesome place. So that sounds much more domestic, much more still, silent, less spectacular than the Abbey Gallop, but it's more dangerous. Our self behind our self concealed should startle most. Assassin hid in our apartment be horrors least. We've sneaked back now into slant rhyme with most and least. Just the... It's a great line though, I think. Our self behind our self concealed... And that's what she's talking about. She's talking about introspection. I mean, it ties in really with that last poem. 
that's the dangerous thing, to contemplate one's own inner life and who you are. That's where you find the ghost. That's where you find the unexpected spectres. Our self behind our self-concealed should startle most. So that should be the most frightening thing. Assassin hid in our apartment be horrors least. It's interesting those slat rhymes most and least to opposite words. So I think that pretty much speaks for itself. The assassin hid in our apartment should be horrors least, less scary than that internal ghost. Last stanza. The body borrows a revolver. He bolts the door. Are we looking a superior spectre or more? So, we're back now to formal rhyme. The body borrows a revolver, he bolts the door. So this now is someone trying to defend themselves against that assassin hid in our apartment. The external ghost seems to have become more flesh and blood as the poem has gone on. So you've locked yourself in this room and you've locked that physical ghost out if you can have a physical ghost but you've locked in you've overlooked as she says are looking a superior specter or more there may be more than one in the corridors of your brain so don't worry about the ghost you've tried to lock out again not easy with a ghost Worry about the one that's always with you that you can't lock out because it's locked in. That is that poem. The way it ends, oh, looking a superior spectre, dash, next line, or more, dash. And just that very short or more, dash, seems almost to be a place for us to put our own fears right at the end there. I'm going to give you a sort of thing from my life which I think throws some light on Emily Dickinson's. Before I became a professional comedian I think I drove my friends crazy by constantly in conversation doing jokes, by taking props to the pub or to the factory so that I could do physical comedy there. I needed an audience and they were all I had and when I became a professional comedian and I had legitimate outlets for my comedy shows in rooms above pubs or theatres or whatever, I relaxed in company. I could, I could just take my foot off the accelerator a little then in company because I'd got my space where I could be full-on comedian. And I don't think Emily had a space where she could be a full-on poet except that room that she hid herself in. And what I think is that everything became poetry for Emily. Like me, she needed some sort of an audience. Her poems had been, it seemed, rejected by the outside world. Here's an example. Here's, if you look at quotes for Emily Dickinson, you'll often see this one. And no wonder, it is a beauty. I am out with lanterns searching for myself. Now, that is a brilliant 
image, I think. And you think, wow, I must find that poem that that's from. But it's not from a poem. It's from a letter to a friend. And it's about moving house in the, in the days when she actually went outside. And she says she's lost her best coat and her best shoes and also quite a bit of her nerves. It was such a shaky journey. And so she's gone out to try and find those items. I'm out with lanterns searching for myself. So it's kind of light-hearted, but you see how the poetry is just falling off her like windfall fruit. Everything now seems to be poetry. There's another letter. Listen to this. This is a quote from a Emily Dickinson letter. Friday, I tasted life. It was a vast morsel, a circus past the house. I still feel the red in my mind. I mean, it is a, a, it's just a grey image and it's in a letter. Even in a conversation, there's a story, a guy went to visit her to talk about her poetry and he talked about the very wantonness of her overstatement. I think because... She didn't have many ordinary conversations that the poetry also infiltrated her conversation. I am getting very biographical now. I said I would let my biographical hair down, and so I have. I think if you don't give this kind of talent a legitimate outlet, it will spill into letters, into conversation everywhere. It must be released. Okay, one more poem. This is from 1873, so about 10 years after the other poem, and I would say into the period where she was recluse with a capital R. A wind that rose, though not a leaf in any forest stirred, but with itself did cold engage beyond the realm of bird. That's the first bit. A wind that rose, though not a leaf in any forest stirred. I think that the wind is her poetry. It's a wind that rose, though not a leaf in any forest stirred, because it hasn't had any effect on the world outside, it seems. But with itself did cold engage. So she is the one who experiences her poetry who engages with it cold engage i think because it's a as we've spoken of before the use of cold and freezing in these it's it's to do with non-spectacular non-dramatic things and a woman living on her own in a room enjoying her own poetry is a cold engagement, I guess, compared to rave reviews, fans knocking at your door, sales of books, etc. And it says, but with itself did cold engage. So it's all very, it's, I think she's become her own audience, her own critic, her own publisher, I suppose. But with itself did cold engage beyond the realm of bird. It's, Beyond the realm of birds suggests cold because it suggests very high above where birds operate. But also high may be in that it is high-minded 
because it is intelligent. I think one thing about becoming your own audience, about not being out there, about not being well known and read by lots of people, is there is no need for performance at all in your poetry. There's no need to compromise uh, for, for clarity. There's no stooping required. And you can be as idiosyncratic as you like because you're the reader. So you get everything. You don't have to explain anything. You use any language that makes you happy. You refer to anything you want to refer to. There's no one that isn't going to get it because you're the one that's reading it. You wrote it. You'll get it. It sounds claustrophobic, I suppose, but it is very freeing, I think, to be who you want to be. If I wrote stand-up that I was never going to perform, I think it would be different from the stand-up comedy I write now and maybe more interesting, certainly more demanding, I think. Anyway, when I said she was her own publisher, some of these poems she used to stitch up into little books. Terrible tragedy of the unpublished poet, I guess an early form of vanity publishing. Anyway, a wind that woke alone delight, like separation swell, restored in arctic confidence to the invisible. And a wind that woke alone delight, I guess, if we're going to go down this biographical route, that's her delight, because no one else is getting the poems like separations swell. Separation is a thing we think of as quite cold and hard and difficult. A swell is like a crescendo in music or when the sea rises up. So I have an image of her in that room experiencing the ecstasy of creation and the joy of reading around stuff and thinking it's good. That's the way. Yeah, I'm really going now as if I... This is all speculation, I'm making that clear. But I'm just trying to justify a bit. And a wind that woke alone delight, if the wind is poetry and she's that lone person, has a kind of... does sound possible. Separation swell. Restored... In arctic confidence to the invisible, that's how the poem ends. Restored in arctic confidence. Confidence, I think, here as in a secret. Arctic, again, that cold thing. She loves that idea. I suppose if you're in a room on your own, everything is quiet and chilled to some extent. And so I think the the lone delight of the poetry, restored in Arctic confidence. So the wind went out there, it didn't stir a leaf, and now it's restored, it's come back in Arctic confidence. No one's going to know. It's a well-kept secret. It's in confidence, a cold, calm, orderly confidence. Restored in Arctic confidence to the invisible. And I think she is the invisible because no one sees her and most of the world don't know she exists 
That's what I think. So the poetry is released. It goes out there. It doesn't even move a leaf. It engages with itself because no one else has engaged with it. And it returns then to the invisible, to this hidden writer. And no one knows about it. It's her secret. A handful of people did know about it and she did send some to friends. But in the grand scheme of things, Emily Dickinson's poetry was a tremendous secret. And she died, as I said, to be precise, on May the 15th, 1886, aged 55. And I guess like the gothic melodrama she was trying to avoid, her sister found a locked chest. And when they unlocked the chest, there was slightly less than 1,800 unpublished poems in there written by Emily. And even then, when they started to get published, people still cut out the dashes and changed some bits to try and make them more accessible. It wasn't really until 1955 that they appeared in their original form. So that's Emily Dickinson. As I say, it took me a while to get into it, but when I got into it, I loved it. There's lots, lots, lots more out there, just less than 1,800, and uh, they're all short, but they are heavily loaded with stuff. So um, go searching. Thanks for listening to Frank Skinner's Poetry Podcast. Don't forget to follow so you never miss an episode. And you can also catch me every Saturday at 8am on Absolute Radio. There'll be less poetry in that, but more jokes. See you next week.